heavy burden of responsibility in a case of tragedy. In such an instance, a CACO's duties would be long and complex and include acting as liaison between NASA and the suffering family, screening all media inquiries, assisting with mortuary affairs, and helping with legal and financial needs. Seventeen years after the shuttle Challenger exploded, some CACOs are still assisting crew family members because the job never ends. We needed to be at Kennedy Space Center 30 minutes before landing. The shuttle was scheduled to land at 9.15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I looked down at my watch. We had only another hour and 15 minutes before Rick was home. I shuffled Lauren Matthew into the car and opened my mouth to ask Steve how concerned I should be about the ground fog, but he was already on his cell phone to see if the weather was clear for landing. At 8.15 a.m., when Rick and the crew were over the Indian Ocean at an altitude of 150 miles, Mission Control gave Rick and Willie McCool, the Columbia's pilot, approval for what is called the deorbit burn. At that time, the shuttle was flying upside down and backward, but because of weightlessness in space, all altitudes feel the same. There is no feeling of being up or down. Rick and Willie fired off the two 6,000-pound thrust orbital maneuvering rocket engines to slow the shuttle for descent as it entered the Earth's atmosphere. And then the shuttle's computer slowly moved the Columbia around into a nose-up position. It was ready for entry. This part of entry is somewhat difficult because the shuttle needs to reach the landing site with sufficient energy. So altitude and airspeed are crucial for keeping the shuttle on trajectory. As the vehicle hits the atmosphere, a tremendous amount of friction is generated. More friction and heat are created as the shuttle descends at a steep angle. Energy is controlled by banking the shuttle, but that turns the vehicle away from the landing site. So then the bank angle must be reversed. From the ground, it looks as if the shuttle is making a series of S turns. Rick and Willie had to constantly monitor deceleration, temperature, hydraulics, and other systems to make sure the shuttle was flying on course and approaching the landing area at just the right angle. The viewing area near the landing site is divided into sections at Kennedy Space Center. There are bleachers for the crew families and their invited guests in one section. NASA officials sit in one section and general spectators are in yet another section. I was able to walk back and forth and visit with Rick's mom, Jane, his brother Keith, Keith's fiancée, Kathy, and many of our invited guests. I was in such a joyful mood that morning that I was very social, talking and laughing with all our guests as we waited for the shuttle. Laura and Matthew were playing in a grassy area that faced the runway with the other crew children, chasing each other and laughing. The fog had lifted and the sun was shining. Inside the orbiter, the crew on the flight deck, Rick, Willie, Laurel, and KC, were videotaping their last minutes aboard the Columbia, just prior to the scheduled landing. Their conversation was easygoing and light. About 8.43 a.m., the crew prepared to enter the Earth's atmosphere. Two minutes to entry interface, Rick said on the video. At 8.45 a.m., the Columbia penetrated the outer fringes of the Earth's atmosphere, just north of Hawaii, at an altitude of 400,000 feet. In the background at Kennedy Space Center, I could hear Mission Control talking with the shuttle, but I wasn't paying attention to anything that was being said. As far as I was concerned, it was just background noise. I grabbed my cell phone and called my parents, Dan and Jean Neely, in Amarillo. Are you watching, Daddy? I asked. Rick's just a few minutes from landing now. We've got the TV on, darling, he said, sharing my excitement. 
I hung up the phone and walked over to Steve Lindsay and asked him exactly what to expect for the landing. It had been four years since Rick's previous flight with STS-96 on board the shuttle Discovery, so I couldn't remember everything that was going to take place. About a minute out, you'll hear the sonic boom, Steve said. Then they'll be coming in from the west. He told me some of the calls Rick would be making to Mission Control when they were close to landing and that those calls would be coming in soon. At 8.53 a.m., as the Columbia flew over San Francisco, data on various monitors at Mission Control in Houston began to indicate vehicle problems. Some hydraulic systems temperature sensors in the shuttle's left wing were indicating unusual temperature changes. Occasional data dropouts occurred during entry, so the crew wasn't notified. But these dropouts are very short in duration and only temporary. The changes in the Columbia's wing began to cascade. As Rick and the crew were over Nevada and Utah, the temperature in the left landing gear and brake lining peaked higher than normal. An amateur astronomer videotaped chunks falling from the Columbia. Two minutes later, as the Columbia flew over Arizona, another home video recorded pieces falling from the orbiter. But neither the crew nor mission control was aware that anything was breaking off of the shuttle. Then, three temperature sensors in the left wing went dead, and the shuttle experienced an increased drag on its left side, something the automatic control systems on board were trying to correct. The Columbia was flying at the equivalent of 18 times the speed of sound or approximately 13,200 miles per hour. Rick was now 1,400 miles from landing and 16 minutes from seeing us again. As the Columbia flew over Texas at an altitude of 207,000 feet, Jeff Kling, the shuttle's mechanical systems officer, read something on his monitor at Mission Control. Jeff said, we just lost tire pressure on the left outboard and left inboard, both tires. At 8.59 a.m., capsule communicator, which is called CAPCOM, Charlie Hobaugh, radioed the crew from Mission Control in Houston. Charlie said, in Columbia, Houston, we see your tire pressure messages, and we did not copy your last. Rick said, Roger, bah. It would be the last communication Mission Control had with Rick. Charlie tried to regain contact with the shuttle. Phil Engeloff, a mission operations directorate official, received word from a colleague who had seen the shuttle breaking up over Texas. Phil shared the news with flight director Leroy Kane. The report was staggering. Leroy immediately called ground control over the flight loop, a common audio channel used by the flight director to communicate with mission control front room flight controllers. The reality of what was happening was settling in at mission control, but at Kennedy Space Center, as we anticipated the landing, I had no idea what was going on. In Amarillo, my parents were quiet as they watched the images on their TV screen. Several bright streaks filled the sky, and when Daddy saw them, his heart sank. CNN was broadcasting that contact had been lost with the shuttle. He turned off the TV. Something was wrong with the camera, Mother said, desperately wanting to believe that what they were seeing was a technical error. The camera was out of focus. Daddy felt nauseous. It's not the camera, Jean, he said. Something is terribly wrong. Within moments, the doorbell rang. Mother answered it. I am so sorry, Jean, a friend said, grabbing Mother's hand. It was then that Mother knew that the camera was not out of focus. When the shuttle was 11 minutes from landing, Matthew, Laura, and I stood for a picture in front of the huge landing clock at Kennedy Space Center, and our faces revealed how excited we were. 
As far as we knew, Rick was just minutes away. I wasn't aware at the time, but found out later that some of the other crew spouses had started listening to communication between Mission Control and the shuttle and knew something was wrong. Steve Lindsay realized it when he heard the dialogue at Mission Control and the attempts to repeatedly contact Rick. Although Steve had just told me minutes earlier which direction I should be looking for the shuttle, I had forgotten. When the shuttle was still about a minute out, I asked again, I'm sorry, Steve, which direction did you say I should be looking? He was listening to Mission Control and held up his finger as if to say, wait a minute, and then I saw the color drain out of his face. He couldn't answer. I saw movement in the corner of my eye and slowly looked to my left. NASA executives and personnel were pouring out of the bleachers with cell phones to their ears. My stomach dropped. I could feel my heart beating, but my body was numb. Something was wrong. Oh God, what's happening? From that moment on, everything moved in slow motion, even my brain. I couldn't think straight. I looked for Laura and Matthew and saw that they were still playing with the other crew children. I looked to my right and saw Keith standing beside Jane. His face was ashen. He had been listening to the communication between Mission Control and the shuttle and had already suspected that something terrible had happened. I moved towards him, but it was difficult to lift my legs. My body wasn't working. Keith, I think something's wrong, I whispered. I think there is too, he said. I tried to process what was taking place. There was no way that this was happening. This was Rick's dream. It could not be ending, not today, not like this. On January 24, 1977, I went with my college roommate to a basketball game at the Texas Tech Coliseum in Lubbock. I got up to buy a Coke and saw a good-looking guy.